Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in. This is Indie Beat, your favorite. You, this is your favorite one, your favorite film podcast. Where we talk to directors, writers, the whole gamut. It's gamut, it's gamut, sorry. Uh, we're on the Playlist Podcast Network, and today we have an interview with a documentary filmmaker. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, everyone. So I am here with filmmaker Julie Sokolow. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me on. Oh, of course. It's my pleasure. Um, so I met you long ago in 2015 at the Northside Film Festival, RIP in Peace, when we both had our first films playing at the same time. Was that your first film? Yeah, yeah. That was my first feature-length documentary uh, called Aspie Seeks Love. And it's about my friend who he was posting personal ad flyers to telephone poles looking for a date for like many, many years. And it was kind of performance art project, but also legitimately like being lonely and looking for love. And in his 40s, he was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and kind of had this like coming of age in his 40s where he was like connecting with autism groups and learning about his psychology and still dating and still trying to find love in the internet age now. And that's kind of when I met him and when we started filming together. So that's the film that uh, we showed at the Northside Film Festival in Brooklyn at Union Docks. And uh, yeah, that was the first one. If we can step it back a little bit, um, I was curious how you got into film. Like, what what is your earliest memory of like an urge where it's like you fell in love with movies, and then if it was the same time or a little bit later, were you like, I got to do this myself? It's interesting growing up in like the New Jersey suburbs. I watched a lot of movies, and I think life was kind of just very boring. (laughs) I was like an indoor kid, didn't play sports, uh, had bad allergies. So I just like watched movies and TV way too much. And uh, when I became a little bit more like rebellious teenage years, uh, you know, kind of got into more independent film, got really into Todd Salons, Welcome to the Dollhouse. Um, So definitely a lot of like narrative films. uh, But around that time, like being 16, 17, I watched uh, the Devil and Daniel Johnston documentary And that was just like really illuminating because it was character driven and it felt like a narrative somehow. Um, I was just like fully immersed in this quirky character's life and music and his art and, you know, obviously his mental illness and everything. And, uh, but I just, you know, and and there's mental illness in my, my family. So um, it just touched me a lot. And I think I realized at that point what documentary could do, but I didn't think I could ever be a filmmaker. Like being like a young woman, there just weren't a lot of examples of women in filmmaking at the time. Uh, It wasn't part of the conversation uh, at that time. So I, it took me a while. It took me to like going to college and like probably dropping acid to open my mind and be like, Oh, I could do art. I don't have to just, I don't know, succeed in a sort of more 
obvious path, but because um, I was at that point trying to pursue psychology uh, and wanted to be like a therapist, but I would always like do art stuff on the side and then started doing art and film was part of that. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to describe because I feel like I'm such a dabbler. Like I play music and I have like a, a few different degrees and I'm still figuring out what I'm going to do in my thirties, but I made three movies. So I guess I kind of know, <laughs> I don't know if you, do you have that at all? Like, do you have like this, like constantly questioning filmmaking? Cause it's such like a unstable path. Oh yeah. No. Um, am I constantly questioning it? Yes. And, but I, you know, I don't think that's uh a bad thing. I'm not saying that you said it was a bad thing, but I'm constantly pretty much questioning everything. Um, the, uh, you know, one of the big reasons why I wanted to do this, uh, podcast is to kind of share the confusion or share some stuff I've learned and kind of talk about that with other filmmakers of just, um, coming out of film school and then getting deep into the indie scene and talking to people and just um, being told that there was like a set path that I had to do things in a set way that I had to do things. And then just spending years banging my head against the wall and just like, it's not working for me. And I can't, I'm not from wealth, so I can't buy my way into it. Like I can't do all these things that I'm told I'm supposed to do. And then I'm just like, well, why is it I have these two things where I need to just like make whatever I can and find interest in that. But then I also have to like play the game and like play by the rules and, uh, coming from a more music based, um, scene, like growing up, like I was into punk and emo and all these indie bands and was in a band. And it's like, there's like that DIY mentality of like putting on shows and stuff. And it was just oh, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, that's, yeah. And I think a lot of us do. Um, and, uh, it's like, well, that's more my mentality. So why am I getting really frustrated and upset and putting all my hopes into like getting into a film festival? <laughs> why aren't I putting on my own screenings? Why aren't there other people doing this? Why don't we all know each other? Um, so I was constantly questioning the path laid out for me and the path laid out for other people, um, how it was kind of like people were very adamant about it, but it was also like clearly not working for many, many people. So yeah, I'm questioning that stuff all the time and I'm kind of finding my way through it into more of a, uh, doing it more of like an artist kind of thing. And I, I imagine if you dabble into like all these different arts, you must have seen a sort of disconnect between those other arts and filmmaking, I guess, when you're talking to other filmmakers or film world people. Is is that the case for you? Uh, it, well, it's interesting. I mean, I didn't go to film school. <laughs> I, I went to the University of Pittsburgh on a scholarship. And so I had a, a full ride, which was incredible. And it allowed me the freedom to pursue my passions and not have to have this like return on investment. So that's probably why I like went off the deep end into the arts. <laughs> and 
after I kind of did that and um, I was playing music and recording these songs and I made like a demo and I sent it out to labels and Western Vinyl picked it up, the label that the Dirty Projectors put out a lot of their early stuff on. And uh, so then like there was press around that and I was touring a little bit uh, at like 19 and it was kind of like my first introduction into like, Oh, like I made an artistic product and I'm out there. There's some like economics tied to this thing that was always just like a bedroom hobby for me (laughs) and a passion. And so, uh, but I never took it seriously as like a way to make money. And, uh, and then I, I was in school and dabbling in film and, I met a really interesting person in the Pittsburgh art scene who was like really funny and a a writer and publisher and struggled with mental illness and addiction and abuse in his past. And I started to film him while I was in like this like intro video class and it became this like documentary project. And that was like the first documentary I ever attempted. It just kind of like came out of nowhere sort of thing. And, and I just found, I actually first tried to write fiction about him and I also have a writing degree. So this just shows you how scattered I am, but, uh, but yeah, I wasn't really all that good at writing fiction. And so like when I was filming him instead, something clicked of like, I was better at curating clips of like a person talking from a real place, uh, an autobiographical place. And, and, you know, like, uh, making a documentary versus writing a screenplay. Like I found that I was just better at that doing documentary work. And it just kind of went from there. It was like the first thing that I had real endurance for, like with documentaries, I just felt like I could like film all day and edit all night and never get tired for a while. (laughs) There it was working out really well. And, uh, it just kind of clicked. It was just like, this is, I can do this and got some grants and moved forward, developed other projects. Um, that first project like totally failed and exploded in my face, like due to just dealing with subjects that one minute said they wanted to be a part of things and the next minute were kind of volatile. And, and so that first project kind of failed, but then the second project was Aspie Seeks Love, which, you know, ended up coming to fruition. So uh, I think a lot of filmmakers have like a failed first project, but like, I guess all this to say that like the way that I approached filmmaking was just like buy a cheap Sony Handycam, go out and film people, you know, in your community and make it work. Like you don't have any money. So what? Like it didn't really money matter. It didn't matter that I didn't have much money to work with up until like the whole post-production phase of like, now we have to package this up and, you know, do the color correction and the audio mix and send this to film festivals. Like that's when things started to actually get more overwhelming than just making the film. Like shooting it was pretty manageable. (laughs) Does that make sense? It's like, I mean, first of all, I, I speak to a lot of people it doesn't seem like any of this is fun for them. And it's kind of like, <laughs> at least the creation part should be like fun. And 
you know, if you ask me at this point in my life, that really should be most of what you're doing. And I think there is a strive to like climb the ladder and to get nice reception. And, you know, I can't deny that I have that or that's not something that like happens in people, but like you're going to be pretty disappointed and you can come crashing down. And I think if you don't value actually doing the work, um, then you're not going to be very happy. There is like a weird kind of reckoning you have to do when it gets to the end and you have to like make it, I don't know, you have to do a lot of non-fun things in order to like, right before you push it out into the world. Yeah. And I, I edit my own stuff. So (laughs) like edit, you know, with the recent documentary feature I just finished, like that's my third documentary feature that I've, directed and edited. And like when you're dealing just with like a hundred hours of footage or more per project and you're like sifting through that and you're so emotionally involved, uh, it can become a slog for sure towards the end. And, but you know, I've, I've heard a lot of writers like really accomplished, fantastic writers talk about how like writing isn't fun. Like it's, it's all about just getting your butt in the chair and like doing it and editing to me is very much like writing uh, writing the movie. So, you know, you don't want to just like shoot a documentary without any clue of the story arc. Like you need to have that thought out, but still all the little nuances happen in, in the edit. So editing could definitely be fun. And I, I've, I've been like pretty Zen about it. Like you get into like a nice mode and you just get really lost in it. But if you end up like kind of shooting something, without direction and thinking you're going to put it together in the edit, then that could very well be not fun unless you really love doing that. And I think you should probably keep that Avenue open just in case like something isn't working for you. Like there could be a solution if you just dump all the stuff and kind of like sift through it. But yeah, I mean, there are definitely aspects of it that should be fun that like might not be, um, which I think people, you know, we need to be open about. But I am curious because we got to, you mentioned something that is actually a future question, and I'm just going to ask you now to sure. go through the, for the through line, because I was wondering, um, you mentioned that you have to, uh, you, you pick a person and they sound excited and then all of a sudden they're not. And I've kind of done a lot of that of oh, finding. Oh, did I say that? Yeah. Who was wait? No, all of my people that I filmed were exciting to to work with. I, no, no, no. You. Uh, it was just the failed first project. Yes. That, yeah. Oh, I mean that was still very interesting. It mm-hmm. just became dangerous to keep moving forward with. Oh wow. It wasn't wow. boring. It was threatening. Right. Life threatening. No, I didn't mean so, boring. I meant just like getting into a project and thinking that you can, you can work on this and then all of a sudden you can't. I think a lot of people don't even recover from that, but, um, would you be able to talk a little bit to that and how you didn't end up just like throwing in the towel? Yeah. I mean, I think I just, uh, have this need for closure and I have this need to like finish what I start. And so like with that first project where I had invested like maybe two years in it, it was my first thing. I was still in my early twenties, like was working on it just at the tail end of undergrad. So like I, 
probably had a sense that it's kind of okay if this fails. Like I'm still learning. I'm still young. <laughs> and, but it, it really definitely was heartbreaking when it failed. And it, it probably felt like everything around me was collapsing. And, and in order to sort of pick myself up out of that, more than anything, I needed another project and I needed something to succeed and, and be completed. And, and it was just kind of perfect timing that at around that, the time when the first project was failing, David Matthews, David V. Matthews <laughs> uh, of Aspie Seeks Love came into my life. He had, you know, Facebook messaged me, uh, saying that he had seen my work and wanted to know if I'd make a documentary about him. And when I met up with him, he just had this great sense of humor and, uh, you know, wanted me to film him going on dates and trying to find love. And he was also a writer trying to put a book out. And I could just tell that he was like a reliable person and very different than what I was dealing with the first time around. Like, just someone who could I could trust to move forward with and and make the film for the next few years and uh it really did work out I feel like that project like saved my life in some ways or <laughs> my sanity in that moment uh and I just kind of pulled all of my motivational energy into the next thing it was kind of like kind of like a rebound in some ways uh, like a rebound relationship, but a rebound film project. Uh, but it worked out and it, it, uh, it was kind of like a dream come true when it finished. And I didn't know anything about film festivals. I had definitely done a lot of like short films for web release only, but I had never done the circuit. And so we premiered it at Cinequest and went to San Jose and like met all these other filmmakers who, were excited and were there to, to show their film for the first time and party, meet other filmmakers. And we won like best doc, uh, at the festival and just like, yeah, it was, it was very dreamy. And then we did the festival tour and played like 30 places probably, uh, around the world and did Northside, did uh new Orleans film festival. though I didn't get to go to that one. Um, and some other really cool ones and blanking. <laughs> oh, the Florida Film Festival. I love the Florida Film Festival. Uh, so just meeting all the programmers and the people who make festivals possible, like they're often equally as passionate as filmmakers are uh, and they're advocates. And I really respect what they do. So like the system is really difficult because like as an indie filmmaker with a limited budget, like you are confronted with like, I want to send my film to a hundred film festivals to be considered. I'll be lucky if I get into like 10 or 20 of those hundred. And it's a lot of money. Each submission is like 50 to a hundred bucks to submit. And it really adds up. Uh, and then some of the festivals like treat you really well with hospitality and some of them really don't and don't give you anything, you know, no hotel or flight to make it work. So it, I think, you know, what I realized with my second film was that the film festivals are like, if you're doing it strategically, you're doing it to sell the film. Like you're trying to get into a top tier festival. So like with my second documentary, woman on fire, we 
did Doc NYC as the premier festival and Film Rise acquired it and stars. And like, it was just a little bit more in having an understanding of the purpose of film festivals. <laughs> and like, as you go on in your career, you make connections and you get more waivers and you get to apply for free. And so like, it, there is that sense of like building a career where you know what you're doing and you're not just like spending money blindly, but also like, it's that difficult thing of like, is this a career? Is this my passion? Is it both? How do I make it work? So, I mean, you know this, I'm preaching to the choir here. Okay. So I gather you're not, you're going to pretty much stay in the documentary field. Is that true? Or would you like pursue kind of something that's more narrative fiction? Yeah, actually I am just dying to do a narrative next and that's where I'm at right now. Uh, I kind of wanted to do it a few years ago and then, uh, my latest film, just kind of like the story, uh, I had to do it as a doc. So with, I just finished, uh, barefoot, the Mark Bomber story, uh, my latest documentary feature. And, uh, I could talk about that, but <laughs> I am ready to go into narrative after that one, actually. So. I've, I always wanted to do narrative, but I didn't feel like I was a good enough writer and maybe hadn't lived enough to be a good writer and also wasn't like that experienced as a director or like, so I wrote a few screenplays and plays in my like early twenties and I would just like write a screenplay and then I would have no clue what to do with it. <laughs> And I, I wasn't like writing practically, like thinking about, could I actually film this? Like, uh, you know, how many locations does this have? How many effects? Uh, so I, I did some screenplays that were like in the magic realism world and probably re would have required millions of dollars to make. And I probably wouldn't do that now. I would write something more down to earth <laughs> that I could actually make. Yeah, that was always like the thing for like a really long time where you would write something and it would be done and you'd be pretty excited about it. But you're like, I don't know what to do next. And I still feel like I kind of like feel like that. I wouldn't know how to do some things if I felt that they were ready. But I guess now at this point in our lives, we probably know somebody who would know. Yes. Um, and then you can kind of like put your heads together and see how you can make it happen. Um, you know, without a lot of money, if you couldn't get any, um, but yeah, that was like a weird hump to kind of get over just figuring out how to do anything that was similar to the kind of thing that you wanted to do that you kind of like pictured mm -hmm. you would do like going off of like what kind of movies really inspired you it just seemed like magic like i don't even know how you make something that that polished with all the elements functioning i mean it, it's kind of a miracle when a movie turns out well because there's just so many things along the way that could have gone wrong you know <laughs> and so many people involved in a lot of cases yeah i mean i still think of like stuff i've written that i would like to do one day and i was like i can't even imagine my like what how would i do that <laughs> like it's like not a thing to me um but I don't know. You never know. Stranger things have happened in this world. So that's always a thing to keep in mind. 
when you want to do something. It's true. I always have on the back burner that script I wrote 10 years ago. <laughs> if anyone wants to read it, <laughs> you're welcome to it. Yeah, so maybe this would be a good time to get into uh, Barefoot. Could you uh, tell the audience the title and the brief synopsis of what it's about? My new documentary feature is called Barefoot, the Mark Bomber Story. And it's about a writer activist uh, with like a really great sense of humor. He's been kind of compared to Andy Kaufman, but he decided to walk barefoot across the country to protest climate change. And he was filming himself the whole time, uh, making these videos that were like three to five minute videos every day editing them on his phone, putting them online every day, blogging, Instagramming, tweeting, like doing all of that uh, as he's walking barefoot from starting in Providence, Rhode Island and headed west. Uh, And the journey um, took a tragic turn. And so basically, like I was a fan of Mark's when he was alive. I was following his videos and his trip. And, uh, you know, Mark was out on the road when Donald Trump was elected and when Trump was inaugurated. And I remember when Trump was inaugurated, it was very devastating. And I turned to watch one of Mark's videos, uh, and in the video, he like goes on this diatribe about everything that like Trump represents and how he's a sexist and a bigot and all these things. And like how he's doesn't care about the environment. And, but it was like a very eloquent speech and it got me like really riled up to like, yeah, we can still fight. We don't have to just like lay down and die now. Uh, Mark's out there fighting for us. And then I went to Facebook and I saw that people were posting that Mark had just died And it was, uh, like my heart stopped. I I just couldn't believe it. And it was even just as a fan who never met him, very devastating. He died, uh, the day after Trump was inaugurated, which was just like coincidence, but it, you know, it just, it, it felt significant and it felt symbolic of, you know, that difficult times were ahead of us. And we had just lost this really powerful, voice, uh, for positive change. And I wanted to help tell his story and commemorate his legacy and preserve his videos that he had shot on the road. So I I reached out to his family and we started making this film together. Yeah. I guess that would be a good question to start, especially for people who would like to get into documentary filmmaking and maybe, I don't know, I guess if you're listening, there's always someone around you who's really interesting, so you you could start there. But I imagine the question is you don't really know this person, and maybe people in the audience would like to do a documentary about people they don't know or someone they read about. Like, how do you go about doing that? And was there any kind of resistance from his family at all to make something like this? This was very different than anything I've ever made before. Um, You know, with other films that I've made before, uh, I did a series called Healthy Artists about 
artists in my community. And like, I would do like these little three to five minute videos of, of an artist, like be it painter, musician, filmmaker, comedian, and they would talk about their work. And then they would talk about like the struggle of being uninsured or underinsured. So it was this like series about the plight of like artists and freelancers in a country without universal healthcare. And, uh, that was like really like, that was such a good place to start as a young filmmaker, because I would just like identify artists in my community who like probably wanted to promote their work and get their stuff out there to a bigger audience. And like, for me to say like, can I film you doing what you do? And also could you help out and talk about this social justice issue? Like it was a very symbiotic thing and very approachable. So that was like a good place to start. Uh, like working with artists is always nice because like artists want to share their work and they usually don't mind being filmed. Whereas other kinds of people who might value privacy more, it's just a different conversation and uh, a lot harder. <laughs> so, I mean, with Barefoot, uh, that was really tough. Uh, I didn't know what was appropriate as far as reaching out to his family. They were grieving the loss of their son. Um, he was the artist who was public, you know, they weren't necessarily going to be that way. And, uh, I, I hesitated, but then I saw that all these articles were coming out in the New Yorker and New York times and all this stuff about his death. And I saw that his parents were talking to the press quite a bit. And I had a mutual friend in common with their son who, who died, Mark. And I asked her if she would give an introduction between me and the family. Cause she knew them and she really helped me out and kind of vouched for me. So then I started talking with the family. I showed them my past work and luckily they, they liked it. They saw that like what I do is kind of a blend of art and advocacy with, with a lot of the films that I do. And, uh, I, you know, flew out to meet them in March. So their son died in January, 2017, and we were filming in March, uh, just a few months later. And so it was just like, I, I stayed with them for a day and got to know them better. And then I had, uh, the cinematographer I work with fly out to do little interviews with both parents. And it was just very emotionally raw and, uh, normally in the past, I maybe would have just gone by myself and filmed and like done my normal, like DIY thing of just like, you know, oops, I hope that you know, me being a one woman crew like works out. But I was like, this is, this is really serious. Like I can't afford to make any mistakes here and I'll be able to be more present with the subject. Maybe if I have my DP there. So uh, yeah, it just worked out like Mark's parents are very similar to him. They're vegan, uh, in, in that kind of activist progressive world. They're like athletes. They're just like really special people. <laughs> They're like really cool parents. So I think because they were so similar to their son, they, they really got it. They understood that he was an artist. He wanted to be out in the public and making these videos and putting them online. Like at one point in the movie, like his dad says he wanted to be famous. 
So I think there was this sense of like, why would we hide his story? Like, no, we have to amplify it, you know, even though he passed, like, especially because he passed. Yeah, that's true. And I wanted to kind of bold one part of that for like uh, budding filmmakers. And what it is, is that like uh, a body of work, very helpful resume. It's not necessarily going to be like, uh, you know, the kind of myth making tales of like, Hey kid, like what else you got, you know? And then they give you like a million dollars. But when people see that you've done stuff and that there is a, you know, a skill there or a vision there, people will are ready to kind of be open to you making other things. And, And that might be like, Oh, you get an actor cast or, Maybe someone does give you a little bit of money, but that does definitely help out. So you really have to start somewhere. And uh, I think it helps more than it hurts. I mean, unless you're, I don't know, (laughs) making like 20 things of uh, you in the kitchen with your roommate, like doing a sketch. If that's what you're doing, then, you know, I don't know how helpful that will be, but... um. Yeah, the body of work definitely is useful to make more things. Yeah, definitely. And I I think they knew that I genuinely cared. Like, the fact that I was a fan of his before he died. And there were, you know, other filmmakers contacting the family wanting to do documentaries. But I don't know that those other filmmakers were fans of Mark's before he died. So, you know, it's easy to, like look at stories going viral and being like, Oh, I'll just, you know, make a film about that thing that's in the news a lot right now, but to come at it with a real personal connection and a genuine interest and care for the subjects. uh, I think people will see that if you have that deeper feeling. Yeah. I was kind of curious about that too. If you were like competing with other filmmakers for this story Um, And I wasn't even sure if you would necessarily know that. Yeah, they were deciding between me and, like, two other people, potentially, uh, at the time. And then as we were making the film, more people reached out, and they had to say, you know, we're already rolling along with Julie, so... uh, And then that puts a lot of pressure (laughs) on me. I was like, oh, wow. You know, I I kind of actually prefer to do stories where no one else is biting because I just feel like, oh, I'm needed here. Like no one else is going to do this unless I'm here doing it. So like in a way, it kind of turned me off because I was like, oh, what if someone else could do it better? And, you know, I'm still somewhat of a scrappy indie filmmaker, but less so because I I have a, a production company that I work with here in Pittsburgh and they do a lot of commercial work uh, as their sort of bread and butter, but they uh, did the beautiful documentary Blood Brother uh, and Almost Holy and just really incredible work. Uh, so to be able to have them as the production company gives me a lot of reassurance that the film will uh, be funded, get made, Um And it gives the subjects a lot of reassurance as well, I think. And this is my third time working with the the production company as well. Watching this, I had this thought that 
the uh, movie was a really good way to talk overtly political stuff. Like, obviously, climate change and um, the election plays a large role in the film. And uh, I was worried if you were excited about it, nervous about it. Like, were you like, oh, how much is too much of, like, all this news footage about the election and the election, you know, going south and, uh, you know, all that stuff? Yeah, it's interesting. When I first thought of this film, I knew that Mark speaking about Donald Trump would have to be in the film, uh, especially since Mark's final video is like recording his hundredth day on the road, which is a milestone in and of itself. And it's also when Trump is being inaugurated and Mark is like issuing one of his most passionate speeches. It's like raining. He's in this poncho and he's just like livid about who is going to be in office. And uh, so I knew that had to be in there and then it, it didn't really occur until like later, just how much sort of footage of, of Trump and like along the way to contextualize things would be like needed or good. And it, it, what's in the film is less than <laughs> in a previous cut. I mean, I think the first cut had very little Trump footage and one of our producers really believed that adding that in would help to, give a counterpoint and kind of a character foil to Mark. Uh, and so I added some in and it really did something, I think, positive for the film of just like, this is what Mark is fighting against. Like you kind of need to see it and you need to be reminded of it within the world of the film. Uh, and then it was just a matter of like, okay, well, this is serving a function, but we need to narrow it down to comply with fair use, for example. So that's a whole thing. Um, but also narrow it down so that it's not just like overload because anytime Trump comes on screen, people are just going to be uncomfortable if they're progressive in the audience. Like I don't want to torture anyone. Um, so it was a delicate balance and we definitely ran into some fair use obstacles and had to cut some stuff out. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy with where it's at. And how has the, um, reception been in terms of, uh, like playing somewhere and getting a Q and a, because again, I feel like you made this film about this one person, but it's also heavily political and it's also about climate change. So when you screen it, it gives you an excuse to talk about these things that you know, I think you and I think need to be talked about a lot more. Um, and how has that been like post screening Q and A's and discussion around the film? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pleased with the reception so far. I mean, we premiered at the Heartland Film Festival and got a best documentary premiere award and we're showing the film in Indianapolis and like, didn't know what the crowd would be like and uh, some folks from the Sierra Club came out and were very supportive. Uh, people who had just like lost a loved one or lost a child, like related to the film. And like, there's that other dimension to the film. That's just like, you get really close, I think, to Mark's parents and his girlfriend and you go through the loss. So I think, you know, you do hear people 
getting tearful in the theater as uh, the story moves forward. And I, we've gotten good response. Um, you know, some, there will always be some people who just don't get it. They're like, well, why would you walk barefoot if you care about the environment? Like that doesn't make sense. And if they watch the whole film and they still feel that way, I don't know what else I can say to them, but I think for a lot of people, they recognize the different dimensions his project was working on, like it's performance art and it's, you know, this idea of like your feet touching the literal earth and it's a protest and it's a sacrifice. Uh, of course it's dangerous. And that's part of what makes it interesting. He knew that it was dangerous. Um, you know, in the film, you see him walking like 20 miles a day. I mean, it was, it ranged, but could be 15 miles a day. One day it was like 28 miles. He walked barefoot in a single day, uh, through rain and snow and ice and, and like, you have to respect the dedication, even if you think it's like the last thing you would do. And he, like, one thing is that he did walk across the country in 2010 successfully with shoes. And, uh, so he, he, and he wasn't, you know, he was athletic, he was a college baseball player. And so you do learn some more information as the film goes along to make you be like, okay, he's an athlete. Like he's thought this through and it's kind of like free solo in some ways, or, you know, like, but obviously a very different ending. I love the whole aspect of it, of it being like, this guy is walking barefoot and that obviously means something that's like a loaded thing in itself. And it makes you kind of question or, or it brings into the forefront the fact that you really can't get anywhere walking. Like it's very unsafe. And the idea of it just being like the only place you can walk on is like all these death roads of just cars speeding by your impending doom. You can feel it every single second for some uh, roads. That is your only way to actually walk. Um, And it brings into the forefront the idea that it was designed like this, that there was a system that designed this and it made it all happen so that you had to have a car in order to get anywhere. And I like that the film kind of, calls that into a que- into question through Mark in like a pretty obvious way, though, you know, as you said, some people still just don't get it and wouldn't be able to connect that. But I was really happy that you have this kind of profound question within the film of it just being like, hey, wait a second, you really couldn't be able to get anywhere on foot and it's weird, but why is that weird, you know? And... Why was it actually designed this way for like walking to be weird? And it made me, it brought me back to, to like, I don't drive. And I remember I was dating someone at the time and we went to the Hamptons film festival and we didn't have a car. We lived in Brooklyn. We didn't need one, but we took a bus up to the Hamptons and it was literally like you could take a cab to your hotel, which was five minutes away 
and spend like $40, like five minutes for $40. Or you could walk, but nobody would walk because it's the Hamptons. So people would like see us walking on the side of the road and like beep at us and give us dirty looks and stuff like that. Like very strange um, behavior for them to do. Whereas like we literally weren't in their way at all or anything. Like we were behind the kind of uh, guardrail. And it's just like, it's so nuts how people strangely enforce this system when they don't even have to. Like, the idea that they have to go out of their way to, like, yell at people who are just walking is very strange. Um, Yeah, not really a question. I No, I'm really glad you brought that up. Uh, It's a really good point, and... I feel the same way you do. I mean, I live in Pittsburgh and I don't have a car. I haven't had a car for like over a decade. And uh, I think to city folk, it's, you know, you know what it's like to just like ride the subway or ride the bus and just use your feet to get everywhere. And as soon as you go like anywhere suburban, it's like, oh, I can't safely navigate this on foot. And why is that? And should the world have been constructed or should America have been constructed this way? And there's this sense that like, it's a car culture and pedestrians have no rights. And I mean, I think what happened with Mark shows that in in an earlier cut of the film, we went more into like just the issue of pedestrian deaths in the United States. And it's like, seems like it's getting higher and higher every year. And it's in the last few few years, it's been around like 6,000 pedestrian deaths every year. And most of those people are just like, you know, probably trying to get to work and don't have a car or like just these things that have to deal with like being low income or, you know, it's, it's a real issue. And yet it's hard to, imagine it being addressed in a real way anytime soon. Uh, but I think just on that sort of metaphorical level with Mark's journey, you know, he day after day is pounding the pavement as these like SUVs are just like ripping by him. And he looks like the sane one in the situation. Like we live in an insane world, you know, it's, I think that's part of, for me, what comes across is like, I prefer a world where we could walk to get around, like instead of relying on these polluting vehicles that isolate us and endanger us. And, but that's a pretty fringe perspective, I realize. <laughs> All right. Well, Julie, it's been real. Thank you for coming on to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, we did. I'm glad we did. Um, Where can people find out about you and and find your work and such? Yeah, they can go to (laughs) juliesokolo.com. I got lots of my projects there, and you can see some of the short films are like on Vimeo and all about the feature docs. So that's a good place to start. Hell yeah. Well, thank you again, and peace.